Coach, welcome back. Episode 24 on tap right here. We pick up right where we left off last week in episode 23, talking about practice part three. This is just a continuation of that conversation. We hope you enjoy and thank you so much for your continued support and for continuing to listen to Essential Coaching Conversations. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life. So let's turn over a few of those rocks then here. When we talk about like what coaches not just their role in practice, but even asking coaches to think about like this idea of practice being for the coaches too. And what are you practicing as a coach in practice? And maybe that's a little bit too much use of the word practice and that's fine, but that's what this, that's what this episode is about. Right? So like thinking about the question, if I go into practice, What am I as the coach practicing? Because I think as much as we've said, like practices for the learner, it's the environment geared toward the learner, blah, 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 blah. As a classroom teacher, if you're just rolling out the same lesson over and over again, year after year after year, and you don't have any reason to grow, then you're not going to be a very good classroom teacher. Right? That's just reality. That's why when you look at corporate burnout, people doing the same thing over and over and over again, year after year after year, like money, money definitely plays a part in why people are unhappy at work. But the majority of like, if you look at the top reasons of the people who are surveyed about why they're unhappy at work or what would move the needle for them, it's literally like contribution to the whole and then opportunities to grow within their role. Right. So as coaches, yeah, we are the environment creators, but that means we have to continue to practice being the best environment creators we can be. It means we have to use practice as a time for us to refine our craft. Right. And this is where I I, I draw issue with a lot of coaches like they use the same theory of like, well, players only grow over the summer and that's the time for them to improve. That's the time for you to improve as a coach when you're not coaching. Right. When you don't have your team with you and you don't have the ability to ask those questions, like we have one survey at the end of the year that's supposed to set the course for everything. But there's no reflection that's happened prior to that, whether it's on a daily basis after practice, on a, on a you know, game by game basis, any of those things. Like, what are we actually bringing to the table as coaches and what are we learning? You know, and so a couple of things that come to mind about what we can be practicing as coaches and like honing our craft. Um, The first thing is like when we're planning practice for players, let's say it's a very learner centered practice. We want to make sure there's worthwhile reps for each of the players. Similarly, we want to plan in our own reps to be worthwhile for us. So if all we're doing is driving to practice, running practice, driving home, Where's the worthwhile piece of the reps that we got as coaches? Because those worthwhile reps lead to 
the reflection and the awareness and the clarity and the alignment of exactly what my role is within the confines of the gym or on the field or on the track or whatever. Instead of I'm here almost just to supervise their, their contributions to each other and their competition with each other. And like, that's part of it, right? You don't want to interject all the time, but you're also practicing that piece. You're practicing the emotional regulation or emotional regulation that it takes to not interject every single time. And the emotional regulation that it takes to not blow up at a kid for making a mistake. I remember, and I I hold this near to myself and as a memory of like, when I did it wrong, I remember we put in like a, um, like a three on three baseline drive help X out situation. And it was a kid that I had already, like, I hadn't really closed the loop with. I hadn't made the next connection with, and she did it wrong the first time. And I like blew up. And I was like, yo, we just went over this. Like, and in that moment, I was like, man, I'm the worst coach ever because we just went over this and this kid didn't get it. But like, and that wasn't in that moment. That was afterwards. Like in that moment, I was like, why is it like this kid has D1 aspirations and like literally can't get this? Like Hmm. what's going on? Right. But that emotional regulation. And if you think about like how many practices you and I have been in, in the various roles that we've been in. There's a tremendous lack of emotional regulation from pretty much everybody in that gym, except for the players, right? But we demand those things from our players. So when there's a bad call, they're not supposed to react to it. But then we model the exact opposite on game day. So what are they supposed to believe, right? Game day is our chance, just like theirs to sort of perform and like, but our job should already be done. And so if we're not getting those worthwhile reps in practice, And then all of a sudden we explode in a game. Well, if they explode in a game, it's probably going to be a technical foul. In our practice, that's just them being passionate or it's them being stupid. And now we're on the line. Well, you as a coach need to be able to practice that emotional regulation before it happens in a game. Right. The other part is decision making. So in the course of practice, we want our players to make decisions. They're going to have to make a ton of decisions in practice. What decisions are we making in practice? How do we practice making those decisions to prioritize health, speed, connections, and engagement? If I see practices going one way and I don't like it, what decisions can be made? Where, who do I talk to? Who do I connect with beyond maybe I don't even have assistant coaches, right? If I didn't have assistant coaches or if a coach didn't have assistant coaches, you got 12, 15 players right there. Ask them, is this going well for us? Why or why not? What can we do to make this better? Right? Did I plan a dud of a practice? You know, I think body language is another one. So like coaches are notorious for having the worst body language of anybody on the court. And they say, you know, Gino Ariema, you will never play if you don't have good body language. Well, like, have you ever seen him when the officials make a bad call? His body language is awful. That's passion. It's yeah. Okay. Well, will we want our players to play with passion, right? We, we don't want them to be robots. We don't want them to have, you know, a lack of passion or a lack of competitiveness. So like, how do we regulate those things? Right. As coaches, are we even aware of what we're saying to players? Or are we just on autopilot and we're ending every sentence with right, or does that make sense? Or, 
fill in the blank, right? We, I, there, I just said it, right? Like there's so many things that we can get better at. We are getting worthwhile reps. If we are not improving as a coach in those areas, again, we are shortchanging our athletes, but we're also asking them to hit the bullseye of a target we have no intention of aiming at. That's, that's very well said. And it's, it's 100%. And again, it's, it's why we use that, you know, hashtag least committed a lot of times, like we're expecting emotional regulations from 14 year olds, 16 year olds, 18 year olds, 22 year olds, when the 30, 40, 50, 60 year old in the room can't emotionally regulate based on the actions of kids, you know, but yet the adult can't, can't regulate the actions of kids, but we expect kids to regulate the actions of adults. And, and, and those kids haven't had the life experience or the experience on the court that the coach probably has. Well, not, not just that, but developmentally speaking, like their brain is not developed yet. Like they, they, there's nothing they can really do about that in, in some context too. Like you're a 14 year old, your, your brain is not fully formed by the time you're in like your mid twenties. So even the seniors in college that you're coaching, they still have actual like physical development that still needs to take place in their own minds. Not to mention just the experiences that help shape those things, but they're not, they're not made ready, made, you know, ended fixed products by that point. And I think that's the other thing that we tend to forget and realize is which ties in this whole, like, well, I expect you to get better over the summer. Well, if I expect you to get better over the summer, then you should just come in as a ready-made product. Mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm off the hook from having to develop you. If I recruit you and you show up as a freshman, I'm expecting you to be at a certain level already, mm-hmm. and that's up to you to walk in ready-made. And then, again, we're off the hook for having to do anything, but again, we're just, we end up telling on ourselves. And so if we're, if we're in practice, and let's say we're, you know, to teacher term CFU, like if we're checking for understanding, are we really checking for understanding or are we checking for compliance? Are we checking for just quote unquote active listeners with head nods? And you know, that, that football video makes the rounds on Twitter from time to time with Sean Lee and the, you know, Van Der Esch, you know, when they're, they're getting their tails reamed by the coach and they're just nodding along and their eyes are wide and they're like, see, that's what it means to be coachable. And it's like, they're just nodding along, knowing that the coach eventually will run out of air and he'll shut up and he'll move on. And we expect our our players to be the same thing, which again, those are paid professional athletes. You know, you're coaching a junior high soccer team. They're not the two, they're not 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 on the same playing field here. Mm-hmm. And so we just use that. Are we good? You understand, you know, any questions? Does that make sense? You with me? And everybody just kind of nods along because they're ready to move on and they're ready to get past that point or they're ready to go on to the next section of practice. And maybe they hate this drill or maybe they're just ready for the coach to shut up and, and, and get on with the next thing. So naturally they just say like, yeah, we're good. But if we were to stop and say things like, uh, Asim, can, you know, we just learned about this rotation. Can you tell me more about that? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what you saw there? Can you tell me what you heard there? You were on the back, you were on the front side of that defense on ball pressure. Can you tell me what you heard from the back line of the defense? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Okay. Well, now we've got an issue that we need to address. Can you tell me what if you're on the back line of the defense, can you tell me what you saw? Right. And now we're having an actual conversation. Yasim says, Well, I think this. Okay, well, does anybody agree with that? Does anybody disagree with that? 
What do you think about that answer? Yada, yada. But the, the problem with all of that is that takes time. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what those answers are going to be. So I think that's another piece to this is, is we as coaches are afraid to ask the more open-ended questions because we have no idea what the answer is going to be. And we don't know what to be prepared for. And again, we are the one person in the room that's supposed to have every answer. We're supposed to have a comeback for everything. We're already supposed to have some, this stuff figured out. And we might get, again, I, I keep going back to time in the classroom. Like you get a kid in class from time to time who asks a lot of questions. And sometimes it's super annoying. And sometimes they hit you with something that you're not prepared for. But then again, that's also an opportunity to model saying, I don't know. And those, those are out. the worthwhile reps, right? Yeah. Those right there are the worthwhile reps. So that's what I, what I was talking about earlier. And I'm glad you brought up checks for understanding because that's literally on the second half of my list, right? Clarity of communication and checks for understanding. Coaches, we are practicing that in practice. That's our time to practice that in practice. Practice is not a performance for you as a coach to put on a coaching clinic. That is a learning environment, mm. everyone involved. And yeah, you might be the teacher. You know, some coaches call themselves teachers and they are not. And that's okay. Like we're working on it, right? But that is something that we are there to help ourselves practice through intentional planning and intentional execution of practice. Practice is not a performance. I think Chris Oliver actually has a a video um, entitled like practice is not a dance recital or something like that, Um, which is the same thing, right? Like this is not a performance for you as a coach to just show how smart you are. It is a, it is a, is a give and take between you and the athletes where you're modeling the behaviors you need them to see right? You are getting worthwhile reps in clarity of communication and checks for understanding. You're getting worthwhile reps in joy and the creativity that we're asking players to have. You are getting reps too. And if you ever think that you're not, now we're in a situation where you're just showing up. And yeah, you might still be there as a coach. You might still be there as the adult in the room or the, or, you know, the educator or the teacher or whatever it is. But at that point, we could put anybody in there and it wouldn't matter, right? You are earning your paycheck. You are earning the job through all of these things that we're talking about, right? So that even includes feedback to the alignment to the style of play. We can't change overnight how we want to play or like the things we've laid out to our student athletes about like, this is who we want to be. And then all of a sudden our feedback doesn't align with that. So that's a rep. It's a worthwhile rep. And at the end of the day, practice builds your character too, coach, right? If we're talking about the repeatability of your positive habits, where are you building those if not for in practice? And so that leads to this idea that like, yeah, players earn their playing time in practice. We just talked about that, but like coaches have to earn that trust from those players in practice too. And players have been really, really forgiving for the past several, you know, however long sports been around because of the power dynamic that exists, but the power dynamic is only going to take you so far before those players just check out. And they're just going to be there to, as Kyle said, as compliance, but not coachability. And they're just going to do enough to get by, right? They're going to do enough so they don't get pulled off the floor. They're going to find the loopholes instead of if we're having worthwhile reps for everyone in the gym, 
right? We still might get it wrong every now and again. Nobody's saying you're going to be perfect at this, but at least you are earning your minutes with the players that they're going to continue to listen and care about what you have to say. Instead of going on autopilot, playing through their talent and trying to get better in any small way they can hold on to. And then the conversation they have with their teammates is like, yo, I, this is awful. Like I'm going to show up for practice or maybe they don't know any better. And that's even worse. Right. I, maybe that's even worse than the players knowing and not being able to do. I think it's even worse that the players don't know any better. Right. So, you know, as we wrap up, just really understanding like how we earn that trust every day with our players matters. And you do that in practice. You do that just like we're asking them to do it through, you know, earning their playing time in practice. It's not only a one-way relationship. And I think that's maybe the crux of this whole thing over three episodes, Kyle, is like practice is a, is a multiple-way street, right? It's a busy intersection. And there has to be right of way for every single person that's trying to get through to get to where they're trying to go. But at the end of the day, we all have to be respectful of the signals and stuff that are being shown to us, you know, and who we are as coaches, like, we can be the teachers in the room, we can be the environment creators, and we can have a fulfilling practice experience where, you know, everybody is practicing and there's going to be grace because we're all learning. But at the end of the day, if the power dynamic is just like, I'm the coach, you're the player, I plan practice, you execute practice, and you don't, you know, there's going to be room for questions, but only the ones I can answer, it's probably going to be a pretty toxic environment after, after a little while. Would you agree? Yeah. And I think the part that you just said there is, uh, you know, is it worse that they don't know, you know, outside of knowing and not being able to say anything. And I think that's where, I think that's where things have changed. If we're going to talk about quote unquote, this generation, right. If anything has changed with this generation, it's that they've, this generation has done a better job finding their own voice and, and having more, courage, perhaps more opportunity, more room, more just, I don't care. I'm going to say what I want to say and think what I want to think. But this generation, quote unquote, needs to know. They want to know. And we, you know, again, we older generation, if you will, doesn't like the fact that they want to know. And if there is a, if there has been a change in, in some of this, it's that it's not enough just to say, do this and, and, this is what you get. And what's funny about this is that the older generation spent all this time saying that they want to equip people for change in the next generation. We want to make you better. Like we're going to send you out into the real world to, you're going to ally ship for yourself and you're going to, you know, we're going to make you better husbands and fathers and all these things. And we're going to empower you to be better citizens and yada, yada. Well, here this generation comes being empowered to be better people and be better decision makers and, and speak up for themselves and speak up for each other. And all of a sudden we don't like it because it's, it's pushback. It's not as easy because they're not being as compliant. When in, in reality, we probably just said all of those things because they sounded great so we could get the job while we were sitting in the interview. But in fact, we don't want those kids to do that while they're here. We want them to do all that when they leave us and be somebody else's problem. But while you're here, you're just going to do what you're told. 
And I think that's sort of the irony of a lot of this is that we have sat here and said for a generation, we want to equip people to be able to advocate for themselves. And here we have a group of people now advocating for themselves and wanting to know, wanting to be curious, wanting to be better. But it's a little annoying to have to deal with all that. <laughs> so we just sit here and complain about, quote unquote, this generation. And so things like, you know, our our feedback language to them is often very short, very cut off, very non-assertive, very just like, uh-uh, do what I'm telling you to do. We, when in reality, we, we just, we would rather have compliance than we would actually build somebody's character. And I think that's where you have to, if, if, you're, if you are self-reflecting as a coach, I think at some point you have to hit this crossroads and decide, like, do I really want to go down this way? That's going to like, yes, all these potential benefits are going to create other problems. And I say problems is like in quotes, like I'm going to have to be able to allow these conversations to happen. I'm going to have to be able to answer their next best question. I'm going to have to be willing to go down that road with them and give them more of myself than I've ever had to before. And so we as coaches have no problem demanding more from our kids, but why can't our kids demand more from us? Why are we able to be the least committed person in the room when at the very same time we're expecting more from them? And I think that's, to me, that's one of the most interesting parts about this that we've, we've discovered, you know, perhaps over these last few years as we dive into this and, and looking at that is not just how we as coaches are evolving, but that's how our players are evolving. And we can't really survive if our players are evolving faster than we are. And uh, one of the one of the things that I I, I wasn't coaching uh, by the time we started all this EC stuff, but I was still teaching. And I remember all the way back to one of our first calls during the the pandemic when we were all locked in, and we were talking about these different types of feedback language. And I I I wish that I'd had, somebody would have had this conversation with me back when I was coaching because I realized on all the opportunities I missed not just to make my kids better, to make myself better, but it ultimately did make me a better teacher. And we talked about the difference between non-assertive language and assertive language and using things like, um, you know, categories of language, like judgmental versus constructive. So an example being like judgmental is just saying like, hey, it's not that hard. Why can't we run this play? Why can't you just rebound? It's not that hard. Why can't you see that rotate? It's not that hard versus the constructive piece Say, I'm asking, I say, what are you having difficulty with? What are you not seeing? What are you not hearing? What is not making sense? What in my instructions or what part of our pathway here is not making sense to you? And then allowing you the opportunity to have a voice to say, this is what I'm having trouble with, as opposed to just saying, Asim, it's not that hard. Get off, get on the line. Another great example was, uh, we called it global versus focused. So saying something like, we just need to be able to make the right play. We need to rebound. Instead of saying, Asim, I need you to rebound, it could be more focused like, hey, what was the decision that you needed to make there? What was your next best decision? And once we started talking about these things, I won't go through the, the whole list of examples, but once we started talking about that in our group, I started taking that back to the classroom with me. And again, the classroom is a little bit more of a controlled environment, right? Like it's not as chaotic and it might be <laughs> depending on what you're doing. But 
I, I was very intentional and reflective on what type of feedback language I get and where I was opening up opportunities for questions. And if somebody was doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, trying to be a little bit more assertive in that language, as opposed to just shutting them off and asking for that compliance. And, and instantly I became a better teacher. And my only real regret with that is that I didn't get the opportunity to see how much better of a coach that would have made me. And you got worthwhile reps in doing that, right? Facts. You had to. And that's how we improve. And so, you know, I think one of the other pieces of this, and maybe this is something we can get into, and it might be just like a separate topic altogether, not really related to practice, but how coaches are evaluated versus how teachers are evaluated. And so evidence of that growth happening And even if it's evaluations from your group of of players or students or whatever you refer to them as, how, like asking the right questions to gauge whether you as a coach have evaluated or or have evolved or not. And if the evolution that we're, we're asking for is only for the players, and we say, well, the players only have four years here and we just need to get them through and we're going to win some games and, you know, all of that, like, they can't trust you if they're not able to see your evolution in their time there. Not when you come back as an alum, like, oh my gosh, thing, coach, like things are so different now. You've changed so much. Well, if we're not changing while they're there, and changing not meaning like changing everything about us, but evolving to the best versions of us, because there's another coach speak one for you, right? Be the best version of yourself today. Well, the best version of me as a coach can't be what I was yesterday. Right? Or maybe if it was what I am yesterday, now I'm not being the best version of myself. Well, why is that? Because I don't know what that was. I didn't reflect on that enough. I didn't look inside enough and say, like, how did I treat that kid today? Do I need to treat that kid differently today? How did I run this today? What were my instructions today, right? All of those things matter. And so, you know, spending less time on what the other team does and more time on even what I personally do as a coach. And I'm saying I as as adopting all of you who are listening as me, right? Like asking you to ask this internal question, like what am I doing as a coach every day? in practice to get my worthwhile reps to ensure that I am the best for my athletes so they can be the best for each other and for our team. So I want to maybe to wrap this up here to go back to what we got to uh, what feels like six conversations ago, (laughs) because we've been talking about practice for a while now. Um, And going back to the ideas of the library, right? And, and assessing what it is that we're doing and reflecting on what it is that we're doing. And I, I think we've teased this a couple of times and finally maybe get to it, but just kind of want to get your thoughts on, on what it takes to assess what it is we're doing in practice. So like, let's say we have this drill library and, and we've created this resource that we just call a drills assessment. And Basically, what we did is we've come up with a handful of what we call essential emphases. All right. So we have this essential emphasis that we want to make sure that is a part of each drill that we run. 
Okay. And so I guess my, my, my thought and challenge to the coaches out there is to kind of come up with what do you consider to be an essential emphasis in a drill? And the idea is not necessarily to say like, this drill is crap. You shouldn't do this. It, it is strictly through the lens of good, better, and best to filter out what are your better drills? How can we take certain drills, increase different areas of focus to potentially create more of that return on the investment that we've been talking about for the last couple of, of segments or episodes? And so, for example, we've um, created this on a, a, a one to five Likert scale. So five being better than one. And here were some of the things through our, our reflection and our conversations. These were the things that we said we wanted drills to have. Number one is safety. All right. Prior, looking at these things through the, the priorities of, of connection, engagement, speed, and health, right? Like that's kind of what drives all of this. Safety is number one. Fun is number two. We want to make sure that there is some decision-making involved. We want to make sure that there's some shooting involved. We want to make it as game-like as possible. We want it to be as competitive as possible. And then ideally, we get a ton of reps out of it. Okay, so that's what? That's seven things. And again, these, this is not an exclusive list. And we challenge you to kind of come up with your own. But if we're going to do something and we take a look and we say, you know, let's talk about it kind of a, a, a fan favorite if you're, you know, on Twitter all the time. If Twitter's still around by the time you hear this. Um, three man weave. All right. So we've got, we got a three man weave. Is it safe? One to five, right? Is it fun? One to five. And we'll come we'll, zero. We'll, we'll come back to that part in just a okay. second. All right. Who, who is it fun for? Right. Is there any decision-making involved in three man weave? No. So if we're, if we're judging these at home, like if you're following along, if you were to write down on, on a scale of one to five, how safe is three-man weave? It's probably pretty safe, right? Like in, in relative terms, right? Like it's no live contact. So yeah, how much decision-making involved? I would say none, a one. Is there any shooting involved? Maybe you have a layup at the end, right? Is it game-like? Is it competitive? How many reps do we get? And we could argue that there's probably some reps involved. Like we could go up and down quite a bit, right? And so based on the way that we've done this, based on our assessment scale, kind of our grading scale, what, what is our version of like an A, B, C, D, or F? If you go through that, are those seven things up one through five, the highest score you can get is a 35. So just bear with me because there's a little math involved. If we can score something a 28 through 35, then for us, and by us, I mean probably you and me, that's a keeper drill, right? If we're in this 21 to 28 range, 27 range, then it's a pretty good drill that we can probably in, do a little bit better by, by creating a couple of modifications. If we're in a, a 13 to 20 range, then there's probably an alternate use for that or a very specific use for that, like just isolated block shooting. Like it's not to say that there's never opportunities for that, right? Especially depending on the level that you have. But if we're down on like a 12 to five, like if we're 12 or below, then it's like an automatic throwaway drill for me, just personally. And so if you go through this and you were to score all of this out, so let's do this real, real quick. This is great radio, I know. But let's let's do this real quick. What would you say 
on a scale of one to five, three man weave, what would you give it? In I'm putting you on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot. So, so in each category, so let's go category by category. Safety. What would you say? Safety. It's very safe. So I'd give it a five. Five. Safety. How much fun? Uh, a zero, but I'll give it a one since it's a one. <laughs> How much decision making? One. Okay. Shooting. One. Uh, game like. Zero is really not an option on our. That's scale. not. Maybe, we're making. We, we screwed up this resource that we made. We probably need to go back and remake. Maybe it. Maybe we should. It, I'll give it a one. I'll give it a one. Competitive. I mean, yeah, maybe we can make it competitive. If we're like, hey, we got to get fifteen in a row or something like that. But you know, still, uh, for the benefit of the doubt, to to three man weave, I'll give it a two. Okay. How many re and reps? A two. All right. So we're at about a 12, mm -hmm. 12 to 13. All right. So let's just take that at the very end of that scale. And now let's say something like, for the sake of this being our podcast, 100 point games. <laughs> Great. Let's talk about 100 point games. 100 point games. And if you're not familiar, we'll, we'll link some stuff to you, but to kind of understand what it is. But all right, let's, let's compare safety. 100 point games i mean it's playing five on five like it's it's fairly safe i'd say it's a four because there's inherent risk of getting injured at anything but because there's contact involved sure like i'll give it a, a three or a four all right we're going to give it a three just for argument's sake just sure. to kind of because it's it is there's potential to get hurt right like it's sure. there's always like, i think risk, i think right? anything where you're going live like it's not going to be a five on the safety scale right? correct so i think but there's also things like you know war rebounding that are certainly a lot less safe than playing four on four or five on five, two on two, whatever, in a more structured manner. Right. So correct. I think hundred point games are unsafe. It's just that there is an inherent risk of injury doing anything, but particularly when there's bodies flying around. Right. So that's why I think you go at about that three or four, but there are, we also see drills on Twitter sometimes where it's like, Hey, we're going to throw the ball against your head to see if you yeah, can right. catch it. Or right. we're going to throw the ball down the floor and you're going to go head first into the bleachers to see who can get it. Again, like if that's what you're wanting and that's considered to be, you know, fun and competitive, maybe it's, maybe it's a five on the fun, maybe it's a five on the competitive, but it's a one on the safety. Yeah, so like, right. again, right. it's not to say that you shouldn't do certain types of things, but is there a way that we can tweak it? And that's sort of the point of this evaluative process. And, and so the other part to safety is I think is psychological safety. And I think hundred point games is actually extremely psychologically safe because we know what we're looking for and because the players are very well aware of what gets us points and what doesn't, and there's no negative contribution or there's no contribution that goes overlooked. And so for that, so for, so for those purposes, like physical safety might be a three, but I'm going to give this a four because gotcha. the psychological safety is a five. And see what's be what the beautiful thing about this, if you're still hanging in here with me, that right there, that back and forth, that conversation that just took place, is helping us assess the return on the investment and all of these things within this particular mm -hmm. drill. And that's the type of conversation that I hope that we're having with our coaching staff and trying to evaluate and figure out, do we need to do this in practice? But anyway, that's a quick aside. All right. What, how fun would you say hundred point games is? I mean, I would say hundred point games is a five. Like it's 100%. I absolutely. Agree. Yeah. Decision-making five shooting. In terms of the number of shots, probably not a five, but in terms of the quality of shots, because we're giving them points for 
sevens and nines, I would give it a four. Okay. I, I You could argue that. I could argue it's probably a, a three just because sure. we're not getting up a ton of quote unquote reps in right. the actual shot itself. But are we getting... You They're know. all game-like shots. I mean, they are okay. game shots that we're going to take. Correct. So what the next yeah. category is game-like. How game-like? 17. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll get a five. So, so yeah, a, five. We'll a five. Competitiveness. A five. Okay. And how many reps? Reps in literally everything. I mean, it's, it is how exactly we want to play. So it, it's not just reps to get reps. They're actually like aligned and congruent reps. So I would definitely give that a five as well. So even if I'm being extremely nitpicky here and kind of harsh on this, and I knocked a couple of these things down a peg or two, we're still at a 33, mm-hmm. 34, or whatever. So like, this is the drill. I mean, and again, in our eyes, this is the drill. Like mm-hmm. this is the end all be all drill. It is, it is as close to perfection as you can possibly get, especially when you consider things like you were talking about alignment, psychological safety, congruence, essential elements, reps, like what we're teaching, collapsing timeframes, we're working on a number of areas like this is positive reinforcement, like the, the, the terms of that reinforcement, what we get from all of that, like this is the drill. And I think you and I would both, both agree with that. And, And those out there who are sort of believers in 100 point games are familiar i think you would i think you would agree so now if we take kind of those two ends of the spectrum all right what are we going to do in practice are we going to do three-man weave or are we going to play 100 point games which one of these are we getting a greater return on our investment for especially if we only have 10 minutes to do something right yeah and just going through this and saying like and the and again these are our essential emphasis it doesn't mean that they're the only ones you could have more, you could have less, you could change the names of them, you could have physical safety, you could add a category for psychological safety, like you were talking about, which is pro- actually a really great idea. Um, so I think, again, like there's some ways that we could tweak this resource as we're going through this, which again, this is the value of having this particular conversation with somebody on your staff, is you and I are getting better right now. Like our practice tomorrow will be better because of this conversation that we are having. Just no inherent just inherently with the questions and the next best decision and the next best question that's popping up by virtue of us having this conversation, this is how we get better. And this is how our players get better because our practice and us as environment creators are getting better. So now you go through this and you take your favorite drill. You know, you could take war rebounding. You could take two, two line passing. You could take elbow jump shooting. You could take, so again, we won't necessarily go through this whole thing for the sake of bad radio here, but Take like your typical like elbow to elbow jump shooting mm-hmm. and score that and then compare that to your, you know, Chris Oliver version of two on one shooting. Right. Where you're getting a closeout and a shot pass decision. And now look at these and, and clearly tip the scale one way or the other. Which one is better for us? Which one increases engagement? Which one increases motivation? Which one aligns more with the the values and the skills and abilities of our players? Which one creates the better environment? And if you can look at this and answer these questions through this lens, you you can't help but view your practice differently and view yourselves differently. And then go from that and start to break down, where can I interject with a question? Where can I use some of that feedback language? How can I tweak the way that I'm, I'm asking those questions and who I'm asking them to? And all of a sudden we have this, you know, tides lift all boats type of analogy and, and we can't help but get better. And 
I'm hopeful that if if you have stuck with us through these however many episodes this has been on practice, and we're finally kind of getting to this evaluative assessment piece, taking something like this and going through your drill library and having this conversation with your staff, but not just your staff, have your players go through and evaluate these drills. Just about to say that. So when Yep. So when you said fun, like not like it might be fun for you, but if it's not fun for your players, is there something we can do that can, can, you know, tip us up that scales? Because you might think war rebounding is great and beneficial for what I'm just picking that drill out. Cause you mentioned it, but ask your players. And then if, if I, as the head coach score a drill as a 30, 32, but you're my assistant and you score it at a 15, then holy crap, do we have some misalignment on what that drill is about and what we're supposed to be getting out of it. Or if I score a drill as a 15, but my players view it as a 23, where is that misalignment coming in and vice versa? And then again, it's just an opportunity to create that next conversation, to raise our level of awareness, to increase our ability to reflect, to allow more voice, to allow more choice, and all of a sudden that practice that was like, oh, we've got to practice and we've got to do that same freaking drill again. Now, all of a sudden we're, we're cooking with gas as, as it were. And the ROI is higher because we're not looking at like, all right, if, listen, if this is a 15 or lower, we just aren't going to do it unless we can move that 15 to a 30. Right. And so I think about it in terms of, I used to say this all the time with like at the high academic high schools that I worked at, like you know, corner threes might be worth four, like corner threes, you know, that's, we wanted sevens and nines. It's the same reason kids take an AP class. They want the grade boost, right? So you're, you're going to pack your schedule as it were with the highest value classes you can take for your GPA. Same thing with practice. So if we're looking at these drill libraries, like if our entire drill library is 30 pluses, like 30 pluses on the drills assessment that we do, but like also that is coupled with 30 pluses in the feedback that we give. Let's not forget about this part, right? It's not just the structure of the drill for those out there listening. Like it is 30 pluses on the structure of the drill and what the drills in, intended for. And we're 30 pluses on our feedback, our checks for understanding the worthwhile reps we're going to get as a coach all those other things that create the environment. Now we've got a 30 plus practice, just like we want 30 plus point possessions and hundred point games. Hey, how about that for alignment? Like literally we play hundred point games every day. We want 30 plus point possessions. We want to have these 30 plus point practices too, because of what we're putting into the practice plan. And it doesn't mean we aren't going to do things that suck. Like sometimes our players don't like some of the things that we do, but we know as coaches, they're necessary for us to do them. So like if kids don't like war rebounding, I love war rebounding. I call it, I don't even call it war rebounding. I call it NBA, no babies allowed, right? That's what we named that when I was at Old Dominion as a manager, Nikita Lowry Dawkins literally called it no babies allowed. So I stole it and adapted it for every team I've ever coached. And wouldn't you know it, the first time players look at you like you're crazy. What do you mean there's no out of bounds? What do you mean we can foul each other? I'm like, yeah, short of punching each other in the face, like go tear each other's heads off to go get the ball, right? There's a threshold. You know what the threshold is and when it it becomes intentional and when it doesn't. 
but we're going to rebound the ball like it matters to us. And we're going to treat this like it's 24 karat gold because I refuse for us to get beat on the boards every night because we're just playing like, you know, hoping the ball is going to come to us like we're the aliens in Toy Story and are waiting for the claw to choose us. We're not going to do that. We're going to go get it. But here's why we're doing this. And eventually that fun factor went from like one because of like the trepidation of like, shit, I'm going to get hurt to a five and players like celebrated when I was like, all right, no babies allowed. Here we go. But that was coupled with the reminders of the physical safety portion, making sure the court was clear, making sure the lines were off the court so that we didn't run into each other. Right. And then the psychological safety and the trust that we had to have as a team that nobody's going to do something malicious and try to hurt somebody else. Right. So you can do all of those things that you want to do in practice. You can push the envelope. But you got to go through that drills assessment and make sure that your instructions, your directions, those are two different things, your feedback, all of that stuff is aligned to making sure that we're getting the most worthwhile reps possible in that 11% of our waking hours for everyone in the gym to get better, not just the players and not just the good players. (laughs) Say that one more time. Not just the players and not just the good players, all of them. Why is that important? I don't think that's something that coaches think about. I think they're only worried about developing the the first five on the, I'm only going to play eight players. I like to keep a tight rotation. I like a small bench, but I have 15 players on my team. And it's like, okay, well, as long as these guys are getting first team reps, then that's okay. But one of the quotes that you've used in the past that I really loved is that every single one of my players in a practice gets first team reps. Every single one. So the way that you end up becoming a better you know, top-down team is every team's, you know, they, they love depth. Well, you develop your depth. You develop your depth within. And it's not the first five that wins you games typically. It's the six through ten. And so most people, depending on what level you're on, most people's one through fives are fairly balanced. You know, if, you, if you're coaching a division one team, you've got some players on your starting five that can hoop, and so does somebody else. But at some point, whether it be player six, player seven, player eight, player nine, at some point, there's going to be a drop off. And so if I can minimize the drop off from six through 10 on my team, but you can only go through seven, then I'm liking my chances. And so that, that I guess, maybe kind of wraps this up and kind of ties all this together as to, you know, we're talking about practice. Well, it's not just that one particular player, but we're also developing every single player, our depth. We're, we're, we're preparing for that grind of January when injuries happen and players are hurt. You know, it's, you're, you're either kind of hurt or you're injured, right? Well, everybody at, at some point in the season is hurt. Everybody's tired. Everybody's banged up. Everybody's a step slow everybody's run down by the time you get to tourney the tourney in March and you've got to be able to play 40 minutes and then some because it's an overtime game or a double overtime game or you got to play three most teams in the country in order to get to the dance they got to win three games in three days mm-hmm. you can't do that with six players you've got to develop eight nine ten potentially eleven and number twelve and so by virtue of these three or four episodes or however many it's turned into I guess it's kind of my hope and challenge to the coaches out there is that use this conversation, not just to develop your best player, 
into the all-conference player, but develop your 10th player into the best 10th player in your league. If, if your 10th player is the best 10th player in the league, then I like your chances.